the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Let me introduce Ray and Pauline James. They are husband and wife who together collaborate superbly, providing RSL services to veterans. Ray is an active member of the RSL New South Wales in many appointments, including that of President. Pauline has contributed as State Manager for RSL New South Wales Auxiliaries. Together, they produce an outstanding contribution to veterans that is decidedly impactful. Their respective details are as follows. Introducing Pauline James, OAM, State Coordinator, RSL New South Wales Auxiliaries. Pauline has been a great Vietnam veteran supporter for many years. She lost three cousins in Vietnam and one more later on. Pauline James was born in Coonamble, country New South Wales, the oldest of seven children. She was introduced to the life of veterans and their needs from a very young age. Her grandfather, uncles and cousins served in various wars. Many lost their lives. Pauline married a Vietnam veteran in the early 1970s and has witnessed firsthand the struggles of those who serve. In 2009, Pauline became an active member of Ingleburn RSL sub-branch Women's Auxiliary. Pauline was elected in 2011 as Western and Southern Metropolitan Councillor on the RSL New South Wales Central Council of Women's Auxiliaries. And then, in 2014, she was elected Deputy State President. And in 2016, she became the State President. Pauline was the State Coordinator of RSL Auxiliaries in 2019 when the Auxiliaries included male members for the first time in the Auxiliaries' history. During her time in these various positions, Pauline has dedicated a large amount of her time to building up membership within the RSL Women's Auxiliaries right across New South Wales. She has also raised awareness of veterans' issues in the broader community. In 2014, Pauline commissioned the Lest We Forget Quilt Project. Pauline, with her team of ladies, supported the Invictus Games held in Sydney in 2018 by donating specially made quilts. Pauline also introduced Thank You For Your Service Quilts in 2019. Lest we forget, we may not have made a Rembrandt or Norman Lindsay, but what we have made has been made with love and respect for our service men and women. Pauline has said, I look back and think about how as a young Navy wife, I boldly fronted the council at Redfern and got a building to start the first Navy playgroup, which was a great success. Introducing Ray James, OAM, President of RSL New South Wales. Ray is also appointed to the following associated entities, Director, RSL National, Chair of RSL Custodian PTY Limited, Anzac House Trust, Anzac Memorial Trust, 
Australian Forces and Overseas Fund and RSL Life Care. A Vietnam veteran, Ray James served over 20 years in the Royal Australian Navy with another 26 years in the Royal Australian Navy Reserve, retiring with the rank of Chief Petty Officer. He also served with the Transport Investigation Branch and also the New South Wales Police Force. Ray has held senior positions at RSL sub-branch and district council levels and is currently a member of Ingleburn RSL sub-branch. He is also chair of RSL Custodian PTY Limited and vice president of the New South Wales branch of the Vietnam Veterans Association of Australia. Pauline and Ray James, both OAMs, it's a real honour to be able to talk to you both together. Pleasure to talk to you, Gareth. And how are you, Pauline? I'm wonderful. Who got the OAM first? I did. Isn't that great? Gone to the right person first. Sorry, Ray. Thank you, Gareth. I want to know how the president of the RS, of RSL New South Wales and the state coordinator of RSL New South Wales Auxiliaries, how did you two meet? We met on the 11th of December 1971 at a nurse's party. I was a nurse and Ray was a sailor and we met there and then we were married four weeks later. Four weeks later? That was a very quick courtship. What did you see across the dance floor, Ray, when you saw Pauline? Look, I very rarely went to uh, dances like such that and nurses' gigs, but I had the opportunity to go and so a heap of us went there and... um, there was these nurses there and I just, I don't know, I must have smelled the, um, the gum leaves of a um, bush girl and... Um, country girl. Country girl from the bush. So uh, being uh, from far north Queensland originally, um, uh, been a country guy myself and brought up and grew up in the Burdekin. So um, when you got married, did yep. you go straight back into, onto the ships? Yeah, look, I was, I'd actually, when I met Pauline at that nurse's uh, dance gig and that, we uh, we just got back from RIMPAC, Rim of the Pacific exercise the day before and uh, on HMO's Torrens and the small co- short courtship. Actually, um, after our marriage, I went back on Torrens to, back to Vietnam. And Pauline, what sort of nurse were you? I was training to be a nursing sister. And Ray sent me then sent me home to Canamble uh, with my mother and father. So I never finished my nursing degree. Well, it wasn't a degree then, Gareth. I was at Lewisham Hospital, and I'd come from a Catholic high school in Canamble to a Catholic hospital. So I didn't finish my nursing. So only right. regret that I ever had in my whole life that I didn't finish my nursing. So. Okay, but at least you got the band aid in Ray. So. Absolutely. Look, what I'm going to do, if that's all right with both of you, Pauline, I'd like to talk to you first about your career. So that means, Ray, like at home, you're not allowed to say anything until I ask you to come back. Is that all right with you? I'm comfortable with that. Oh, that's good. All right. Pauline, you're the eldest of seven. Big family. Yes, five girls and two boys. Very big families. Even in, in the 50s, uh, seven children, was, it was a big family. But I uh, grew up in Canamble, loved being a country girl, but, of course, there was no opportunity to do nursing or anything, really, in a country town. So I needed to come to Sydney to work. What is being a country girl? What does that mean, Pauline? Well, going to a Catholic school, I was a very strong individual because the nuns made us extremely strong. I had a father that told me that I was as good as the Queen of England 
and she was as good as me. So rank or anything like that uh, never worried me. I was a great debater at school. I won every debate. I was a very determined person, always on my soapbox. I couldn't believe that I actually married a Vietnam veteran because I had three cousins killed in Vietnam and was totally against the Vietnam War. I wasn't one of those people marching in the streets, but I debated the nuns because the nuns would tell us that the communists were coming to get us. And then I would say, well, no, they're not, sister, because they don't have ships, they can't get here. But, Gareth, you would know that growing up in that era, we were all told that the communists were coming, sort of thing. So I I never believed in anything like that. Having lost three people three relatives in Vietnam, what was the motivation for your understanding of veterans in general and their needs come from? Where did that start? Well, it started veterans. I started very young helping. My grandmother belonged to the Women's Auxiliary at Canamble. So on a Friday, I would go down in my lunch break. They always had a cake stall in the main street of the town. So cakes and plants and jams and stuff like that. So I would go down in that. So I realised what veterans were about because I'd grown up knowing that I had two great uncles that were killed in the First World War. My grandmother still spoke of them. I knew of my cousin that was killed. You know, he received first DFC. His name was Charles Richardson Diggs and he received a DFC first of the British Empire. So I had all that military stuff knowing all that. It was only, you know, when people start, my cousins and different people started being killed in Vietnam that I thought this is wrong. I then, marrying Ray, I didn't even realise that he was going to Vietnam. Let me ask you this. I mean, you are the state coordinator of RSL New South Wales Auxiliaries. What is what is the RSL New South Wales Auxiliaries? What does it do? We're the fundraising arm of the RSL New South Wales. So our auxiliaries are the ladies that you see out doing garage sales, doing cake stalls, selling the tokens. Our sub-branches do that as well, but that's what our auxiliaries do. We only have 2,000 members, and the only fair figures that I can give you is on 2016 because we've had the COVID, so we can't judge, and then we had we stopped selling, you know, when with the inquiries and things like that. So So in 2016, our 2,000 auxiliary members raised $965,000, which is a tremendous amount of money to raise. We know that we need to raise these funds for our veterans and their families. I do it, Gareth, not because my husband's a Vietnam veteran, not because my son is a Timor, not because my grandson's in the Navy. I do it for the three cousins that never came home and don't have a family and have children. So my motivation every day is to do something that I know that I'm doing for my family. Now that makes a lot of sense. The nine hundred plus thousand dollars that you spoke about, how is that money distributed? So what would happen, uh, so sub-branches, it would be used in sub-branches for welfare and about $300,000 of that would have gone directly. It was the old WBI, it's now 
Veterans Services, but it was called WBI, so the money would have gone to that because, as you know, New South Wales RSL does not allow any veterans to be buried a pauper, so our money that we raise pays for funerals. Not every veteran in New South Wales has a gold card, you know, and can get access to DVA. People put on the uniform and they don't have a gold card. They may be on an old age pension. They can't afford to buy a sleep apnea machine or they can't afford to buy a wheelchair. So this is why we must keep yeah. raising money. Where and when was your first experience with RSL? Was it before 2009 when you joined the Inkleburn RSL sub-branch? When did it occur? So in Canamble with my grandmother and my grandfather was Second World War. So we would go to functions that the uh, sub-branch would put like a Christmas party or an Easter parade party that they would put on. So from a very early age, I was aware of the RSL, but I didn't really get involved. And in, Ray joined in uh, 1975 at Marigville sub-branch. He sort of was like a recruitment officer on HMAS Melbourne. He, he joined up so many people. So from 75, we then didn't do anything with the RSL because I was too busy. I started the, uh, the very first Navy playgroup at Waterloo. You know, I was more interested in looking after making sure that the wives of our sailors had some, you know, like a playgroup for the kids to go to. So I not only started the Waterloo playgroup, when we moved to a Navy house at Lanier, which is out near Liverpool, I started a Navy playgroup out there. And was that just for Navy personnel? Navy personnel. So we did have a, a lady come and join us that brother-in-law was actually in the Navy and she was a great help to us. But like we had a, in town like uh, CPSO it was called. It was an office and they were very helpful in setting up. But I realised how old I was. I've just found some letters that as a 23-year-old I'd written to the council to <laughs> Redfern demanding, demanding a place for us to uh, hold a playgroup. So uh, I think I've always been a bit on the um, bowl side. Well, no, it's it's on that I'll stand up for right, things that are right side <laughs> rather than the other side of it. Pauline, yeah. well, you're involvement with uh, the Ingleburn RSL sub-branch Women's Auxiliary. To be a member of a sub-branch, do you have to have served or is there some other, is there an exception? Uh, no, the auxiliary or the sub-branch. In the sub-branch, you must have served in the armed forces, but in our auxiliary, you just have to believe in raising funds for veterans. It's not a social group. Everyone that joins the auxiliary know that we're there to fundraise. We do have social activities. The majority are mothers or wives of veterans. What do you think would happen if there wasn't uh, uh, the RSL New South Wales Auxiliaries, if, if that didn't exist? What do you think would be the situation for veterans? I think that they would be poorer because our auxiliary members are very, very smart women. You know, when we're talking about women, we've, we now have men in our auxiliaries, but they're very smart. They were accountants, they were teachers. They can help their sub-branches. I need our sub-branches to accept how smart our auxiliary members are and can help them because our sub-branches are, are getting older and older, but our auxiliary members are there to help. We can help with visitations to hospitals. We can do a phone trip where, you know, we've only got to sit at home and they give us a list so that we can ring people. Like I have 35 Vietnam veterans from MacArthur 
that I ring on a regular basis to see how they're going because with isolation, a lot of people are afraid to come out. Look, they like to get the phone call, but most of the time they just want to talk to me about what Ray's doing. So uh, I'm able to able to fill them up because he, he you know, busy. So I, I do that. And I do my phone calls, Gareth, when we're traveling around to sub-branches and exhaustives throughout the state. So, you know, you're sitting in the car sometimes for seven hours. So I'm able to do a lot of phone calls. Yeah. You mentioned that you now have male members. I, I believe that was in 2019 when that was yes. off. How come? Okay, well, what was happening, when James Brown was the president of RSL New South Wales and that auxiliaries were going to be closed, they weren't going to have auxiliaries. So we had to put up a fight to make sure that we stayed because you can't just discriminate against. So sub-branches have men and women in it. You go down to meet a ship when I go down with Ray to meet a ship when it's coming back and, that you know, there'll be men standing on the wharf with a baby and their wife is coming off the ship. So we just need fundraisers. We don't care what they are as long as they're prepared to fundraise. What are some of the fundraising activities that the auxiliaries get involved in? Okay, they do walkathons. They do walkathons. They do cake stalls. They do jumble sales. They do garage sales. And the most important is in uh, April selling the tokens and in November the poppy sales. And what I've done, when I came into here in 2011, I came in as a counsellor. That's what they were called back then. And I looked around and I thought, what are we doing? We're just a body in here. We're not doing anything. Yes, we're uh, sending out people's membership and stuff like that, but we're not doing anything. So that's why I decided to do the quilts. I don't knit I don't sew, I don't crochet, but I'm a pretty good salesperson. And so I sent out 400 blocks, 10 by 10, and asked the auxiliaries to put what they thought the war, First World War, Second World War, everything meant to them. I got enough blocks back to make eight quilts. I raffled one of those quilts and got $37,000 for it. I sent one of the quilts to Gallipoli, one of the quilts to Pozieres and Femelles. Those two quilts are now in the War Memorial here in Hyde Park. That's the Lest We Forget quilt? Well, the Lest We Forget quilt was the one that we raised the $37,000 for. And the quilt that's in the War Memorial in Canberra is called We Will Remember Them. And like I say, we may not have made a Rembrandt or a Norman Lindsay, but everything that we've done, we've done with love. Let me focus on those quilts for a second because you started that in 2014. So yes. when you talk about a block, is that a block of quilt, is it? Is a... No, it's a block of uh, material like fabric. So it's 10 by 10. It's already sewn as, as, as a 10 by no, 10. No, no, it's just cut out. So my friend Anne-Marie Jacobs, she cut all the, the blocks out and we sent them out to the auxiliary. So those who wanted to do something, we sent them to them and then they sent us back and then Kay Brown from Camden Country Quilters. Kay quilted them. Christine Frame and Emery Jacobs actually designed the quilts. Okay, now, you've, as you said, there's the, the first one was the Less We Forget quilt. Then there was the We Will Remember Them quilt, which is now in the War Memorial in Canberra. Yes, I handed that over to Brendan Nelson. And there are two others, the Gallipoli Journey quilt and the At the Going Down of the Sun quilt, and they are in the Hyde Park War Memorial. Is that correct? They are. They are. So, so very each of those quilts were auctioned off. Is that the way you raised them? 
No, no, only the uh, Lest We Forget quilt was raffle. So we sent sent out raffle tickets and sold the raffle, $37,000 worth of raffle tickets. And then Christine Frame made a poppy quilt and I raffled that and got $28,000 for that. Now, I have been, as you know, the MC at the dawn service in Martin Place at the Cenotaph every year yes. for a while now. And yes. I've noticed a lot of ladies wearing poppy scarves. Mm-hmm. That came from you too, did it not? And if so, how did you come up with that idea? Uh, well, the poppy scarves, we had a lot of poppy scarves and the, my idea when we went into COVID, as you know, was to wear the poppy scarf and we used the poppy scarves to make masks. I now sell them. So we made $16,000 with just the masks for veteran services. And what, and what about the, the scarf? I sell that to Hyde Park. So I sell it to Hyde Park for $30 and they sell it for forty nine ninety five, and then they give the whole lot of the money to veteran services. And I believe you have a red one and a green one. What's the difference of the colours? Now I've got a red one and a purple one. Purple one, okay. What's the, sorry, what's the, I'm well, colour the purple, Well, the, the red is for those that we've lost. The purple is for the animals because we forget about how many animals that we had, you know, right back to camels, everything, you know, like all horses. And all the horses were yeah, used yeah. World War One. yeah. yeah, yeah yes. The dogs, the dogs for the... Dogs, the dogs. The, so, yeah. those, the, the purple scarf. And people are starting to actually get on board this over at Narrabeen. They're having a... Day with the purple poppy. You know, there's white poppies for peace. There's um, lots and lots of poppies. And the yellow poppies, they were such a hit in the Invictus Games. I only needed 1,200 and I got about 8,000. So, Gareth, you would have, at the Invictus Games, you would have seen the poppies were flooded everywhere. I did. And look, I've got to say, it's, it's very heartwarming. When I do the dawn service, and particularly as the light starts to come, actually to see in the crowd, and there are many, many thousands of people come to acknowledge the Air Force, the Navy and the Army, the contributions made by those three services, to see all these ladies with these beautiful red scarves, you are to be congratulated for doing that. When you became state president in 2016, what was your set of aims? What did you want to achieve? What I wanted to achieve, that everybody would know that we existed, that we weren't just little old ladies having cups of tea, that we're a force to be reckoned with. And I certainly believe that I have achieved that along with my wonderful support from my husband. We're very lucky. If we look back to 1948, when Central Council of RSL Auxiliaries uh, had their first president, was a Mrs Todd, and her husband was the country vice president. But never before have we had the president of the RSL New South Wales and... The president, I'm now a coordinator. It's the same, 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 but my new uh, identity is state coordinator of RSL Auxiliaries. All right, I won't call you Madam President anymore. No, no. Listening, if you're listening to what Pauline is saying, you know, predominantly I know we're focused on the Royal Australian Air Force and of the many interviews we've done, but behind every one of those interviewees, there is a family, a husband and or a wife. And in the veteran who comes back from an engagement overseas, be it Air Force, Navy or Army, it's important that the veterans, the quality of life for those veterans is maintained and looked after. And this is what these auxiliaries are doing for all 
ex-service personnel, no matter what the service happens to be. What about young people, Pauline? Are, are you able to attract younger members to the auxiliaries? And if so, how? Well, our youngest member at Ingleburn is 24, but she joined when she was 16. She's our granddaughter. So, so she was not made go along, but uh, encouraged to go along. <laughs> So uh, my daughter is a member at Ingleburn as well. So we've got grandmother, mother and daughter. Our granddaughter is a lawyer. She does what she can. She can sell the poppies or the tokens. But what her most of her things is to help me with like reports and stuff like that. I still need you to focus on that part of the question. What does the auxiliary do or what can it do? to attract more people like your granddaughter? Well, I think that what it can do to attract more people is for each auxiliary to set up a Facebook page or an Instagram. Younger people follow people on Instagram. So my belief would be that each auxiliary, each sub-branch has a Facebook page and an Instagram page to attract young people because there's no use putting an ad in the paper because, as you know, Gareth, we don't have local papers anymore. They're gone. I encourage each of our auxiliary members and our sub-branch members to go to their local Member of Parliament and their Federal Member of Parliament and ask them to put a little story. We need people. We need sub-branch members and we need auxiliary members. Mm. So that's free advertisement. By using your local member, go to your local council and do stories that we need we need these people because, you know, when we go, hopefully someone else will pick up the baton. But until then, until my last day, I will be encouraging people for younger people to come. You don't need to have meetings all the time. I come from a generation where people think that having a meeting, you've achieved something. I think that you achieve something even by just having a small get together. Listen to what Pauline is saying right now. If you have young people in the family, knock on the door of your local RSL club and ask uh, someone. Yes, go on, Pauline. No, not clubs because we're not a club. We're the sub branch. The sub branch. Yes, the sub. But I'm sure if you, I'm sure if you go to your local RSL club, you will be able to get someone at the reception to point you in the right direction to join the RSL. New South Wales Auxiliaries, yes? Thank you, yes. Okay, now I'm going to come back to you, Pauline, but I want to now go to the Navy man, and even though this is an Air Force focus, he is in the Navy, and that's part of our very important part of the Australian military, Ray James OAM, and you got your OAM second, Ray. Yeah, six months later, mate. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I've got mine on, uh, on the Queen's birthday on a list. Um, okay. We've got hers on the Australia Day on a list. That's all right. I understand. Now, your father was in World War Two, correct? Yeah, he was 2nd 25th Battalion, yes. He was in the Army. He's an infantryman, yes. I've got to ask you then, was it rebellion? Why did you join the Navy and not the Army? Actually, I, um, I was... Um, with a, uh, a church group up on uh, Magnetic Island on a um, uh, weekend, and uh, I saw HMAS Melbourne anchored just in uh, between Magnetic Island and Townsville, and I said, I'm going to join the Navy and sail the Seven Seas. So I went home after that expedition and um, asked my parents, could I join the Navy? And my dad said, no, you just started your apprenticeship as an apprentice mechanic. I'm not signing nothing. So after much arguing and um Conversation. They signed the papers, and um, at age 15, I uh, left uh, far north Queensland town of Air in the Burdekin and uh, the Burdekin Valley and uh, 
went to West Australia and uh, started my Navy career on the 5th of January 1965 at age 15. Was that HMAS Lewin? Yeah, it was HMAS Lewin, yes. Tell us about HMAS Lewin. What was it and what was it like there? Well, at age 15, coming from um, from far north Queensland um, and never been south of Mackay before, I'd done a fair bit of amateur boxing and I'd, I'd fought from Mackay up to Cairns and all around the area, but I'd never been south of Mackay and I find myself at age 15 sitting in HMAS Lewin with another couple of hundred kids saying, what the hell have we got into here? We got off the bus late at night about 11.30, midnight, um, we had all these men in uniform yelling and screaming at us and calling us all sorts of names and saying, what the hell have I got myself into okay. here? Was it a good life at Lewin? Look, it got off at a bit of a rocky start. I got in a little bit of strife over there. I didn't have a sponsor over there, so I had uh, not much leave. I was a little bit rebellious trying to handle the discipline, but it set me in a good frame for 12 months later when I left uh, HMAS Lewin and joined HMAS Sydney, the training ship and troop carrier, commonly known as the Bungtow Ferry at age 16. And what year would that have been, roughly, Ray? Well, I left Blue on Christmas 65 and joined the ship early January 66. So you're on the HMAS Sydney and that was bound for Vietnam, correct? Yeah, I turned 17 in the March of, um, 8th of March uh, 1966 and um, sailed to Vietnam uh, at age 17. Age 17. What was HMAS, HMAS Sydney like, Ray? Look, it was an old aircraft carrier. It fought in uh, the Korean War. It was built during World War Two by the Poms. It was fitted out as a fast troop carrier. So we had uh, some 400 crew members on board from memory and uh, we'd take about 450, 500 troops to Vietnam and bring the same amount back. But there was an old aircraft carrier, yeah. On your voyages to back and forwards to Vietnam, did the ship encounter any sort of hostility? No, we're pretty lucky. Um, we were always set for it. Uh, we used to anchor off Cape Tavark, I think it was called, in uh, in Bang Tau. Uh, we'd see all the action there. We would prepare the ship, lighting around the ship and that, and, um, and man the ship's side with weapons and prepare to disembark the troops and a lot of equipment. The most precious equipment of all was the uh, Rishi's beer, along with other things, and very important mail for the troops in Vietnam and uh, and then we embarked trips returning from Vietnam. Uh, that whole time, we were always on alert. Quite a few things happened in in Vang Tau. In Vang Tau, when we were travelling backwards and forwards, um, there were ships attacked. There was a lot of things that happened there. But Sydney was never attacked. No, nah, Sydney was never attacked. What was your role on the ship during the Vietnam? Voyages. I was a part of the engineering branch, working down the um, boiler room uh, and the engine room, maintaining the, um, the ship's propulsion and also the ship's generators, making sure that we all had hot bars and hot food. And how many voyages on HMAS Sydney did you take to Vietnam? I've done six on the Sydney and one on HMAS Torrens as escort. Okay. Well, how does that happen in the Navy then, that you're on Sydney and then you end up on HMAS Torrens? Is it a voluntary transfer? Is it they just moved you because you needed elsewhere? How does it occur? No, well, during that time on the Sydney, I did leave the Sydney during those trips to Vietnam. I went to HMAS Cerberus and done my uh, my branch course, become a, a full-fledged uh, engineering branch member. Um, then I went back to the Sydney. What was your role on Torrens? Same thing. I was uh, uh, what, what happened was I, uh, I'd applied for submarines. I ended up in Penguin Hospital with skin cancer. I didn't end up going to the UK on submarines. So what they did, they transferred me to uh, HMAS Melbourne, 
which was um, an aircraft carrier in refit at the time, refitted to take on the Skyhawks and the Trackers. And I'd done some time on HMAS Melbourne. Whilst I was on Melbourne, third of June 69, we were exercising off the coast of Vietnam in the South China Sea and we collided with the US Frankie Evans, the loss of 74 American lives. That still affects me today. There was three brothers on board there, the Sage brothers. The three of them lost their lives. So after that trip, we came back to Sydney and I ended up on standby Torrens. Uh, HMOS Torrens was being built up at Cockatoo Island and that's how I ended up on Torrens. And the first trip I'd done on Torrens was, other than around to uh, around Australia, was to escort the Sydney to Vietnam. That was just three weeks after I got married. What sort of ship was the HMOS Torrens, mate? Was it a destroyer or what was it? It was a Leander-class frigate. Frigate, so it fully armed vessel. Yeah, fully armed, yeah. And again on that, you you were the engineer? I was one of the engineering crew, crew on board. Yeah, I was a, a leading uh, LMA, leading mechanical engineer, which is a calic, which is a leading hand, which is similar to a corporal. I don't want to dwell on the USS Frankie Evans, but whilst you're on Melbourne and that incident occurred, were you conscious of it occurring whilst you were on Melbourne? Did you feel the impact of it? Did you have a sense of what was going on? Yeah, I was I was attached to the flight deck engineering crew at the time. I uh, operated the arrestor wires, which was the wires that catch the planes when they land on board the carrier. So I was one of the operators that controlled the uh, arrestor wires. Just prior to the collision, we were called to hands to emergency. Oh, sorry, hands to collision stations, hands to collision stations. I was about to go on watch at 10 to 4 that morning. That was called at just after 3 a.m. And at 3.15, the collision happened. I was actually in my mess deck when the collision happened. And yes, everybody felt the collision on the ship. Myself and other engineering group went out onto the gun sponson, which is where we operate the arrestor wires from. And I actually viewed the sinking of the forward end of the ship. The ship was cut in half and the forward end was there and I saw it lay over to its side and kick up and go under. I can understand why that image still lives with you, Ray. It's funny, I do wake up at a similar time each year on that date, so it sinks in my mind. You'll see the crew members uh, scrambling on the ship and screaming out for help and then it going under the water. There was no vision, no photos taken. It went down within a couple of minutes, uh, the forward half. The after half of the ship went down. And our starboard side, and we secured that to the starboard quarter of the HMAS Melbourne. Uh, we threw some scrambling nets over the side to get crew members off that. There was many crew members uh, floating in the um, in the ocean uh, at the time, and uh, there was plenty of helicopters and small vessels around collecting the people who were floating in the ocean. We won't dwell on that incident, but it's very sad for HMAS Melbourne that the other incident that also occurred was Voyager, almost as if Melbourne didn't really have a, have a lucky life at all. Um, the Queen's Silver Jubilee, how were you involved in that? I was a petty officer stoker on board HMAS Melbourne in 77, and we uh, sailed with HMAS Brisbane and the, USS, uh, the New Zealand ship, Canterbury and we sailed to the UK to be a part of the Spithead Review for the Queen to commemorate her Silver Jubilee. Did she come and inspect either of the ships? All of the ships from all nations, uh, all Commonwealth nations around the world we were in the Spithead where they were all lined up in particular line and she went past us on the Britannia and uh, we hooray her as she went past each ship. So of all of the ships, Ray, that you've sailed on, do you have a, a preference for any one of those ships that, you, that that was a particularly enjoyable time? I know they all were enjoyable, but one does one stand out? It yeah, one does stand out. I, I also served as a petty officer on HMAS Brisbane and I went back 
to her as the Chief Petty Officer Stoker on board HMAS Brisbane for my last couple of years in the Navy. And I must say that the HMAS Brisbane, which was a DDG, it was by far the highlight of my career. And just to top that off now, my grandson currently serves on the um, HMAS Brisbane that's replaced the Brisbane that I was on. Things come round full circle, Ray. They tell me, well, I know, they don't tell me I know because you still do it. You're a rugby player and a coach and you're also a boxer. You, in fact, had a gold, your golden gloves winner, is that right? Yeah, look, prior to joining the Navy, I, I was in the amateur boxing team in, in the Burdekin and I'd had several fights, I had about 22 fights from memory in the amateur game and that's prior to joining the Navy and then I continued on boxing in the Navy but although when I did join the Navy, the boxing competitions were just not as they were previously but that sort of toned down the boxing time stuff but I'd done boxing on board HMAS Sydney, taking the troops to and from Vietnam. We used to have a boxing tournament between Army and Navy on board the the um, Sydney and I had uh, several bouts there. Now, tell me about the 1967 match on HMA of Sydney. Is, is it, does that stand out as a memory for you? It does really. It was a bit of a struggle for me because I was only about eight stone, eight and a half stone, and most of the army guys were a couple of stone heavier than me. I couldn't uh, fight somebody my own size. But anyway, the guy I fought in 1967, he was actually on his way back. He'd been deployed to uh, Malaysia, but he put his hand up for Vietnam, so he came back on the Sydney and then went back over to Vietnam. But he was the actual services featherweight champion and of the Far East, and I managed to be matched with him, and I won the fight. Remind me to argue with you at the door service in the future, Ray. Your role, sorry, your life within the Royal Australian Navy, which is the oldest force, by the way, I hasten to add, for all our Air Force and Army personnel listening to right now, how would you sum up your career in the Navy, Ray? Look, I, uh, I enjoyed the Navy. Uh, I didn't want to leave the Navy. In 1985, when I had to make a decision to leave the Navy, I left full-time Navy, the permanent Navy. It was uh, a life that made me what I am today. Like I said, I joined the Navy at age 15 and hadn't been outside North Queensland. And I met a lot of people, a lot of friends. I've still got friends that I met when we were 15-year-olds. I've still got those friends today. The camaraderie that was built up in there the mateship, the travel. So I'd sum it up and say that it's made me what I am today. And I didn't uh, leave the Navy in the true sense. I transferred to the reserves and I actually finished my reserve time in 2014. So whilst I was doing my reserve time, I I spent 20 years in the um, police force, but going back and doing reserve time from time to time. And your family's very much involved, uh, not only your wife, but your family's very much involved in defence and veterans in many ways. Exactly. Like my dad was, um, and I know now my dad was suffering from, but he was 16 and um, when he first went to uh, New Guinea. Uh, he fought on the Kokoda track. He went from there to Borneo to Balikpapan to the landing there. Then he put his hand up and went to Curie in Japan for the British Commonwealth Occupation Forces. And he returned home in 1947. So from that time on, he was a part of the RSL. He ended up a life member of the RSL in Queensland. I was a member of the uh, youth club in the RSL. So uh, I've been involved in the RSL since I was a young child and uh, mm. at the club in, in the Burdekin. And as you said, your grandson is also now in the Navy. Yeah, look, my grandson's in the Navy and I'm very proud of that. And my son is uh, serving in the military police. Um, my son-in-law it was a nine years in the sapper as a sapper, engineering engineers. So, yeah, we've got a, a, quite a military family. Did you convince your grandson to join the Navy or was it his choice? His parents, my daughter and, and son-in-law, had moved to Canberra for 12 months. In the, he's in the building trade. He learned his trade in the Army as a sapper. 
and they moved down there for 12 months and young Harry came up to spend some time with myself and Pauline, his grandparents, and in that four months he decided to, after a few conversations, decide to put his hand up and go to the Navy and he got in and he's made every post a winner since, which is two years now. Yeah, well, you you and Pauline are to be congratulated for not only what you've done in the Navy, but also with the RSL and with your family. Let's go to the RSL. You're the president currently of the RSL New South Wales. I know your term comes to a close sometime this year. What do you think the role of the RSL in 2023 should be? It's exactly what our forefathers started in 1916-17 and the role of the RSL today, the veteran of today is no different than the veteran of World War One and the Boer War as such. They all got the same needs. They need help to resettle after their service time in, into the civilian life and they need the help, whether it be medical help, help from DVA, Department of Veteran Affairs, help for housing, children for schooling and all that. Our veterans from World War One suffered very badly and had no support and that's what happened back then and that's what the RSL evolved around that. And the RSL today is no different from that. The difference is that the veteran of today coming out of the Defence Force needs the same sort of help. They need to be able to have the camaraderie, meet with people who think the same, experience the same. And that's what the RSL is is helping people to do today. It's the oldest ESO in Australia and its aims and objectives have not changed. We look after veterans and their families. What have been some of the challenges for you as president of the RSL New South Wales in your term? In my term is that the challenges of being around the younger veterans coming home from Afghanistan, Iraq as such, understanding the way that we do business. So we have to change the way we do business. So the challenges of being is, is membership, uh, retaining that membership, and we're doing that. And just in, in recent 12 months, we've got online membership now because social media is in play, uh, a little bit different than before, so that everybody is on social media. So we've reached out in that area, changing the way we do business, And we've got over 2,000 new members online in the last 12 months. So they can come and join the RSL by attending a sub-branch meeting in uh, one of the 330-odd sub-branches around New South Wales. They can do that and fill out a form and wait through the process of probably up to three months. Now with this five-minute online uh, membership, it's a lot easier for the younger veterans to be involved. They put their postcode in, RSL headquarters gets back to them from Anzac House and says, well, these are sub-branches in your location and connects them with the sub-branches. That. So it is starting to work. It's, it's a slow process, but it's starting to ramp up now. And we just have to change the way we do business in the society that we're in today. But getting back to the needs of veterans of today are no different than the needs of veterans yesterday. How is the RSL confronting PTSD? We need to have advocates qualified in being able to address the issues and direct the people to the needs that they need, whether it be psychologists, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, the specialists in those areas. And we, we're going down that track with the help of the government, the federal government, with these grants for um, CapEx for the Veteran Wellbeing Centres, where it's a one-stop shop, where a veteran can connect to one of these veteran centres, wellbeing centres, and connect to whatever needs they need, whether it be housing, work, working with both state government and federal government in that area. And it's starting to uh, reap the benefits and connect with veterans out there. It sounds like the brief for the RSL New South Wales now in 2023 is much larger than it was, say, in 1923. Exactly. It is a bigger brief. That's what we've got to understand. And the membership of the RSL movement in not just New South Wales, but across Australia, the average age is is up in the 70s. So we've got to encourage our current members to encourage 
the younger members to come on board. That means that the older membership needs to change. We need to change the way we do business and communicate. Communication is the biggest problem. It's communicating with the younger veterans through social media and that, and that's, mm. that's one of the hard tasks. What, as a former Vietnam participant and now Vietnam veteran and member of Vietnam Veterans Association, how did you feel when Bob Hawke initiated that Welcome Back March? I was over the moon. I was a part of that and working with the radio stations and that was a big turning point because up until that stage, the Vietnam veterans weren't even well accepted, even in the RSL movement. We were accepted in the RSL movement, but not some up to different sub-branches whether they accepted us or not. So you could go to one sub-branch, they say, we don't want you. So the Welcome Home March that Bob Hawke put on was the turning point for the Vietnam veterans as far as I'm concerned, and the Welcome Home March was well accepted. And Vietnam Veterans Day on the 18th of August every year seems to be growing in, in number. That must make you feel very, very good. It does, look, at, uh, and that's on the, in, in New South Wales, that is. That is at the Cenotaph every year at the 18th of August, and it'll always be there. So when the last Vietnam veteran leaves this earth, Vietnam Veterans Day will be commemorated on the 18th of August every day at Martin Place in the Cenotaph. Not a silly question, but as, almost as a final question. The dawn service, which occurs on Anzac Day at the Cenotaph in Martin Place, as the various veterans connected to the original have now ceased to exist, do you think the dawn service itself will survive? As long as I'm alive, it will. Yes, I can understand where you're coming from with that. It is strong. The Dawn Service Trust needs a bit of a change in structure, I believe, but the Dawn Service will always be there. The RSL will always be involved. RSL New South Wales will always be there to make sure that the Dawn Service is held every year with the appropriate significance and, and respect. I've got to say, for the last five years that I've been the MC, to see an increase in number of young people, not veterans, but teenagers, coming to that Dawn Service is very uplifting and makes me feel good. It is, and, uh, and I can say this, that uh, across the state, our sub-branches conduct dawn services in their own lo community locations, and the increase in school children, not just at high school level, but primary school level, showing the respect at their individual community dawn services, it has grown immensely throughout New South Wales. Ray, look, I want to thank you just before we bring Pauline back in personally for your participation in the services as a Navy person, but also as your role of President of the RSL New South Wales, you've left a significant stamp on it and you've uh, brought it really well and truly into the 21st century, so you should feel proud about that, of what you've achieved. I'm very proud and look, at the end of the day, I'm the first actual elected Navy representative to be President of RSL New South Wales in the history of the RSL in New South Wales, so I'm very proud. Okay. Let's bring back in the other OAM, and that is Pauline, husband and wife. Pauline, in one sentence, describe Ray James, and I'm going to ask you the same question, Ray. Honourable. I agree with honourable, most definitely. As a husband, I couldn't even, uh, 51 years, he's the most honourable man that I've ever, ever known in my whole life. That's all I can say. Ray? One sentence or one word. Look, when I met Pauline, I knew straight away that she was someone that I respected and I respect her so much. Her support for me, she's gone through a lot. I've gone through a lot over the years, but she's very supportive and well 
well-respected person in my life. I have to say, uh, being a former New South Welsh person and uh, certainly a participant with Ray James in the RSL for Dawn Service and Vietnam Veterans Day and VP Day and all the other activities, I've never come across two people so dedicated to each other, so involved with each other, so supportive of each other and for 51 years have stayed strong together and created a very great family. So, Ray... And Pauline, congratulations on what you have done for New South Wales and the veterans. And it's been an honour to work with you and chat to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Gareth. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of for Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.